1: What was it? Lemon curd and raspberry cupcake with a lemon Italian meringue topping. Yes, well remembered. Um,
2: it was, a, I, I'm not a massive fan of lemon, but there's something delicious about a
1: really sharp, tangy lemon flavour to a sponge. I think there's just something about the setting. You know, if you're in a radio studio and you are in there, Uh, entirely of your own volition for two hours. It doesn't really matter what food is brought in, I'll eat it. (laughs) Yeah, it's a bit like how everything in a studio is often funnier and
2: much more, everything's heightened. It is. I find you hilarious on Yeah, I know, but not in not IRL <laughs> at all. Um, I've got a tiny bit of cashew knot in my teeth. That's I do not true. Cool. we've really um, snacked our way through oh, I today. Oh, God, it has been. Well, it's been a bit like that today, hasn't it? Um, I still think that Henry Bird's cakes do look a little bit like Anglo-Saxon dwellings, but I think I might have been alone there, so it might be better just to move on. Uh, can I bring in another dull story? Yes, you may. It's from Stuart. Uh, I've been meaning to email you since you moved to the other side, but being a single gay man with two cats, Dorothy and George, I've got little interesting to say, as my dull story will confirm. I've been a big fan of you both. Oh, Fee, isn't that lovely? Uh, He says he's been listening to you, Fee, all over the place, but his favourite was your Sunday service. That's a very long time
1: ago. It's nice of you to remember. That's when Fee was a vicar.
2: (laughs) Unfortunately, she's
1: been defrocked. And turned her hand to yes, show that. We don't mention that because all of those results have been removed from Google. <laughs> Whenever you see that, don't you always think, oh, God, I really want to know what that is.
2: What has been removed? Anyway, back to Stuart. He says his story goes back to when he was in his 20s, sharing a flat close to Trendy Lark Lane in Liverpool 17. And it is Trendy Lark Lane. Um, You might be able to help me with this, Stuart. There was a lovely restaurant on Lark Lane, which I used to go to with my parents. Can't remember the name of it. Anyway, uh, Stuart's friends were Chopper and Mincemeat. My nickname, says Stuart, was and is hideous, but that's a slightly interesting story, so I won't tell you it. My dull story is that one Sunday afternoon I came home and sat down in the lounge and said to Chopper, I've just been in the petrol station. Oh, right, said Chopper. Yes, I said, I was looking at the chocolate chocolate bars, but I didn't get one. Is that it, said Chopper, is that all you have to say? I said, that was it. When Mincemeat arrived back from work in the evening... Chopper made me tell him the really interesting story. I've been ridiculed about this for years. They even say I need to go on Graham Norton and tell my chocolate bar story on the red chair bit. I think you should. Well, Stuart, um, that is certainly duller than the story from yesterday about the uh, street WhatsApp free couscous offer. I'm very uneasy when I say couscous because I never think I say it right. Couscous. What? I don't know either. Couscous. Cows, cows. Cows Cows, Cows, cows. yeah, it's a very peculiar thing, that, and I never cook it, but sometimes have it in the canteen, and I don't know how to say
1: it, so I always just point. Fair enough. It is mildly interesting that you didn't choose a chocolate bar, though. I I would have stuck with that conversation. Yeah, I don't know, know. you
2: must have. Well, sometimes you look, you want chocolate, but then you look at the selection on
1: offer in any particular emporium, and it just doesn't quite match the mood. I'm with you on that. Mm. Do you know what I did the other night? And this will embarrass you. I spent about 45 minutes trying to find some dark chocolate bounties to buy you. Doesn't embarrass me at all. I'm rather titillated by it. Well, I saw uh, actually a, a colleague from this building uh, mm. who usually demands the dark chocolate bounty in his dressing room uh, had just got oh, to yeah. the yeah, got to the end Him. of the line. Yep, yeah, and there aren't any more left in the northern hemisphere. Uh, so I thought, because I know that you prefer them, I thought, oh gosh, well, I'll just go online and see if I can buy some before they do all run out for Jane, because that would be a nice thing to do. And I just went down a rabbit hole of confectioners. And the only place that I could find to buy any uh, was in, I think it was one of those southern states in America. But just to get a box of four with shipping was going to cost me about $54, and I didn't think it would make it through customs anyway. It probably wouldn't, would it? So I'm afraid I didn't buy any for you. But there you go. That's a dull story all of your own. You've contributed (laughs) there. Yeah. Absolutely lovely. But just back to the sum results have been removed. It is one of those incredibly frustrating modern things, isn't it? Because immediately you think, I'll Google that, but that's the whole point.
2: Yeah. And can I ask, how do you get that done?
1: Well, you write to Google. You write to you Google. You write to Google and you say, I think you have to, you have, you do have to be able to prove that the reason you want the results removed is either because they're wrong or they are libelous, slanderous or worse, mm. factually incorrect mm. or deeply affecting somebody else in, in, your life. in your life. Okay. So it's all, almost all modern rules apply and then they will take down those results but I think it's quite a long and tortuous process now because uh, obviously you're behind quite a few people in a queue right I didn't even know that you could do it. I know that I've seen what you what you say. That what is it? What's the
2: wording of it? Some, Some results have been removed. That's it. Some results have been removed. But I've been puzzling over that. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, what, there's nothing I'd want removed, really. I mean, everything's shit happens, doesn't it? Um, to everybody. I'm talking personally. I, I just have to take it.
1: Yeah. No, I'm with um, you on that. I mean, I don't think there's anything. if you've been libelled or slandered or included in somebody's story wrongly, mm. then you absolutely still should have the right, right. to remove it because it's where everybody goes for their facts. In my case, yeah. that thing about the Arctic roll it's just... It's still there. It's
2: still there, I know. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, Glyn says, anybody with the remotest interest in the Magdalene Laundries and the Catholic Church's role in forced adoptions in Ireland, uh, this is in the light of the BBC series that I was talking about, The Woman in the Wall, should listen to your ex-colleague Becky Milligan's oh. superb podcast series, The Home Babies. I remember listening to one episode, Outrunning, and I had to stop and have a sit-down and a cry mid-run. That's a good point, isn't it? That was excellent. You're quite right, Glyn, thank you. Um, she'd be a good guest, actually. She has a very disarming interview style, And used to do some excellent stuff. I'm sure she still does. Oh, he goes on to say she's also just brought out a new podcast called Hooked on Freddy. About that case back in the 90s. I know. Well, this is awkward, isn't it? That case back in the 90s of a man who was falsely accused of something involving a dolphin in the North Sea. says here, this may be of special interest to Fee. (laughs) What with her wild swimming proclivities. Thank you, Glynn.
1: No, but not not that wild. Uh, Not that wild. (laughs) wild. Absolutely not. (laughs) Uh, So Becky would make a very good guest. Do you remember her series where she used to go out to lunch with politicians? And she was so disarming. She got an awful lot of very very good exclusives and stories Mm. uh, by
2: appearing not to make much
1: effort. Yep, a gentle sit down. Yeah. Uh, very clever politicians of all varieties and flavours this one comes from Miranda Mulholland which is just a lovely name isn't it I think my life would have been better (laughs) if i had been called Miranda and now tied with
2: Miranda Mulholland
1: yes oh Miranda welcome aboard dear Jane and Fee I'm a musician living in Toronto but as a dual citizen of Canada and the UK I feel closer to England just listening to your sparkling banter and warm repartee we hate each other really I miss the UK very much having spent a good deal of time in the Miss Mar Apple-esque village of Twyford in Hampshire, Goodness. which is where I made my last album. I know Twyford very well. Do you? Yeah. And I used to cycle out to Twyford because uh, there were a couple of boys out that way. Well, they had <laughs> boys there. Wow. <laughs> Let's, Let's go. go. <laughs> we didn't have any in Winchester. Just go. i a red racer. Cycle all the way to Twyford <laughs> in the hope of seeing one. <laughs> On times. We didn't oh. speak like that, Jane. Goodness sake, oh, get oh, a grip. No. One thing you don't get in Toronto, but <laughs> that I learned is quite popular mm. in small villages such as Twyford is the drop by, which I'll come to in a minute. But you asked today on the podcast about changing into home clothes after work. And I giggle because my favourite thing to wear around the house is a silk slip cut on the bias, very flattering on the figure, and a kimono or long sweater. Hello. I know, Miranda. (laughs) It started as a joke with a university roommate years ago because we decided that if you were having a rather blue day, you could put it on a slip and swan around like some sort of literary heroine and it would cheer you up. It stuck. It did. Uh, it works after a day of zooms, or after a gig, or a rehearsal. It's extra soignee. Is that the right word? Yes, yeah, swanier. So- so- lovely word. Anyway, yeah. if you make yourself a cocktail or mocktail in a fancy glass and put on some jazz, it does, however, make you the talk of the village when you're seen from the windows swanning around the house. As such, when curious locals execute a drop by on the visiting Canadian, still, it's worth it. Kisses, Miranda. Well I think we rather needed a picture didn't we, we to need a picture that. we need to know what kind of music Miranda performs and writes generally all of that, does yes. um flavor of mocktail cocktail and we were having this conversation in the office uh, in fact just before you came in Jane all of our younger colleagues change into something more comfortable when they get home from work and they were appalled at the idea that you and I might stay in these clothes and at one point one of them was actually pointing at me going what you stay in that <laughs> Well, that's the respect. I I have. It's Eve's dad. Eve's out there with her dad. It's bring your dad to work day. Yeah, oh, he's a lovely smiley man, isn't he? He looks
2: very tolerant. I think he's needed to be over the years. I would have thought so.
1: Yeah. You know, he's your age. Is he? Yeah. Wow, he looks good on it. So we don't change, do we? When well, home or you do you? That?
2: Well, now I realise I generally. It's partly because I'm so clumsy, and as I've generally got some sort of splatting dish to. Prepare, you might loosely call it. I sort of do need to to get into my um my tracky bums and so you do get changed. Shirt. Well, more often than not, I would do. Yeah, oh, it's yeah. just me then. I don't want any stains. No. So you wouldn't just stains. You I wouldn't just put an apron on or something like apron. that. Um, I do have aprons. Um, and I probably could wear one, but I just like to feel I'm at home. And that's mm. actually the subject of our interview, which we'll get to in a moment. Oh, but clever. we also yeah. um need to move seamlessly to the topic of stuffing tortoises, don't we?
1: Oh, we do, don't we? We certainly do. Well remembered, sister. Thank you.
2: So we've been talking to Times journalist Lucy Bannerman. Now, Lucy has a dark secret. Well, I mean, it's not that dark, and it's not really a secret anymore. But she has.
1: Well, she stuffed her tortoise. So she had a tortoise called Togi uh, that she togi. had togi, that she had had for a very, very long time. Uh, but nobody really knew how old he was when he arrived. Mm. Uh, And he died, obviously. And she decided that she wanted to (laughs) to stuff him. So she went on a taxidermy course in Leith, and she's written about it in the Times Saturday magazine. And we thought it would make a fantastic interview because of this podcast's consideration Mm -hmm. of taxidermy over the last couple of weeks. So what you've got this
2: week, or this Thursday, it's a bumper bundle edition of Off Air that might see you across the weekend, after a fashion, because we've still got Kate Humble to come. So here is Lucy Bannerman on... Well, first of all, she just tells us a little bit about her late tortoise.
3: I mean, I'll have to be honest, he wasn't the biggest of personalities, but um, it was a present I got when I was 18 months old, and already he'd been owned by someone before that for at least 20 years, and that guy had grown up and he sold him on. And then when he... When he died a few months ago, you know, I'd had him for 40 odd years. He was at least 60 years old. So he wasn't just a family pet. He was like an artefact. He was this kind of um, sort of thing that fascinated me since I was a kid. So um, it just seemed like a perfectly natural decision to make sure he, he was preserved for posterity. What, what did he do? Not much. He <laughs> ate, ate some lettuce. You know, he was just... <laughs> Poor everything. He was one of these, um, tortoises that before the sort of 1984 import ban came in, one of those hundreds of thousands of tortoises that were scooped up off a Mediterranean hillside somewhere and then taken to Britain and flogged so cheaply, yeah. which is why so many of like my grand's generation had all these tortoises in their garden. Um, and then he came to us and he stayed and led along and fairly uneventful life in a suburban garden in Dundee. Would it be fair to say that
1: uh, you might have imagined uh, that he would be an easy taxidermy project simply because he didn't move all that much in life therefore it wouldn't be hard to preserve that kind of immobility
3: Possibly. Uh, in my naivety, I thought you just t- called up a taxidermist and they would do anything. But as I've learned, tortoise taxidermy is quite a specialist thing. Apparently, if you want to start off, you start off with birds and mammals because they're quite easy. If you make a mistake, you can cover it up with a bit of fur or feathers. But not many people, not many taxidermists will touch reptiles because as I've learned, those, those skin folds, that delicate reptile skin is quite tricky. So, very few people will actually take it on, but thankfully, I met a man who was up for the job. Drew Bain, a taxidermist in Edinburgh, who's one of the best and possibly only taxidermists in the country, who are willing to take on a tortoise. D- did he? Does he?
2: Did he remove the shell to do the the other well, work?
3: This is the clever bit. So I thought, for journalistic purposes only, obviously, I thought it'd be quite interesting to go up and watch Drew as he did the taxidermy um, up in Edinburgh. So I went there imagining some beautiful, you know, wood panelled studio, Phileas Fogg style, and it was obviously a much more modern warehouse in Leith near the docks in Edinburgh. And I thought I just watched Drew do it. And I ended up accidentally sort of participating in the dismemberment of my own childhood pet. And it was quite something to to witness, yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, in in all seriousness,
1: was it a little bit too emotionally connected for you?
3: It was just a bit squeamish, yeah. but it, it wasn't a, a connection with your with a reptile. It's like a cold cerebral connection, isn't it? It's not the same as a mammal. I mean, I think I would have been a bit more emotional had it been my dog. Yeah. But um, but he managed to take off the whole front piece in one go of the shell. Of, of, no, of the of he took the... off the head attached to the neck, attached to the two front legs all in one piece without getting too icky about mm-hmm. it and kept the shell intact. Just and looking then, after
2: the back
3: bit. Yes, and then did the back bit and that's the point where I had to sort of yank on a stiff, half-defrosted tortoise leg as he sort of did his thing. But I think old taxidermy, they would have just chiselled open the shell and like opened up the whole thing. But he imagined, he, he managed somehow, because he's very skilled, to do it without with, with completely preserving the shell as it is. So there's... Yeah, yeah, there's no joints.
1: You do say in the piece that you were briefly tempted uh, to have him on water skis or playing the bagpipes. A friend had suggested a coquettish glance over the shoulder, but <laughs> Drew was having none of that.
3: He wasn't. He um, he was taking it very seriously, and he thought, "No, this is all about respect to the animal, and it's all about sort of replicating it in its natural state." Although he did have an alligator standing up upright, holding a cocktail tray.
2: That is a fine one to talk,
3: isn't (laughs) it? But no, I get his point and I completely agree. So it's much better to go down the natural route. Where is he now? He's pride of place on my piano. Mm.
1: It is a a very popular current thing to do though, isn't it, taxidermy? Especially, as you found out, amongst the young.
3: Yeah, and particularly younger women. So obviously there's this old school sort of uh, cliche about what a taxidermist might look like and you might think of an older male. But um, one young woman I was speaking to, Becky Dick, who's a taxidermist in Gloucestershire, she's a typical um, example of the sort of new generation of young females or artists, art graduates who are interested in it. And she said a lot of it was down to a lot of the information now being easily accessible. There's lots of like how-to videos on YouTube, (laughs) if you want to spend your time doing that. Um, And lots of people are sharing information. And so when, you know she did get involved. She was quite surprised, pleasantly surprised to see there was many other young women like ourselves who who was interested in it. The stuffed
2: elephant in the room um, is, I mean, how close are we to preserving humans uh, in this way?
3: Oh, goodness. Well there's a question. I would like to think not very,
2: but... It's... Well, I'd <laughs> like to think so too, but... I don't know.
1: Well I
3: think the embalming
1: techniques have come on in leaps and bounds what I mean. yes, recently yes, yes, yes. haven't they and there's a huge thing in America for the beauty mortician isn't there? I mean there are prizes you can win for best beauty mortician because people want to have an open casket they do want to see a very beautiful life-like corpse yeah, so but, but
2: then the funeral and the possibly the cremation happens I'm talking about Keeping things going a bit longer, what do you mean well you know, stuff
3: <laughs> stuffing a dead person just having them sitting there in the room might be oh. a bit disconcerting or holding a, you know holding a cocktail or cocktail I mean, you know why not well, well,
1: you can write into the podcast <laughs> um, with all the
2: reasons
3: why not <laughs> um were you were you pleased with the finished article? he has done an astonishing job i can't believe how yeah what he's done it's amazing um, and i mean I've, i did feel a bit robbed at the uk guild of taxidermy annual awards though i was delighted to see that when we entered toji for the competition which is like a profes- a competition for all of the country's most dedicated professional and amateur taxidermists they all get judged by an international panel of experts and i was delighted to see that toji won best fish and reptile in the professional category and then that's when Drew delivered the devastating news that it was the only fish and reptile in the category. Okay. <laughs> so he was best Why and did worst. did you have to tell you? <laughs> I know. But, um, but then he was marked down by these judges because he didn't put on a fake head. He didn't replace the real head with a fiberglass head. And I just thought that was outrageous. And
1: do you still feel any affection for stuffed toadies you, you did for
3: real life? Absolutely. You do? Although he does smell a bit funny. I have to say. Uh, what does he smell of? Apparently he put some preservative in. Nail varnish remover. So it's quite a chemical smell. It okay. <laughs> did freak out the kids a little bit. But I think they'll get used to yeah, it. He so smells a
1: bit like a nail bar.
3: <laughs> yeah, a little bit. A little bit. But yeah, definitely a good thing to do, I think. You know, people thought it was admittedly a bit strange. But it would have been a waste to waste such a beautiful shell. And now he's there for poster- posterity. So no regrets i'd like to think it's what he would have wanted he's got no choice in it now mm. though
1: um we can't <laughs> let you go uh, i just wanted to ask you one question about tabitha <laughs> and homer uh, who were they and what did they get up to
3: tabitha and homer were the tortoises that belonged to my great aunt winifred and they came to stay one weekend and toji had loud raucous sex with both of them I think it must have been the best weekend of his life
2: Lucy Bannerman. Um, I thought that was a really, because that was a very affectionate telling of that story. And I think it was also I said to you, it's just lovely to get a really lovely, beautiful Scottish accent. Yeah, Yeah.
1: it would be one of those things that you might sign up for, which then in the moment you realise is completely beyond your emotional landscape. Uh, you know, very much, I've felt like that sometimes in craft classes that I've joined, where I've turned up there, I thought it was a very good idea, and then it's gone very wrong. But seriously, I mean, if you see someone sawing the front off your tortoise... I thought the detail of the shell and everything was, yes, it was very graphic, actually. Yeah. But I'm intrigued by this new craze for taxidermy, because there is something very visceral about it. There is, and what concerns me, if I could be semi-serious for a
2: moment, is if it goes out of fashion... All these objects, what will happen to them when they're not wanted by the next generation down? They're just
1: going to end up in landfill, aren't they?
2: That's really sad.
1: Well, it is, and they'll be covered in forever chemicals, won't they? Because you must have a forever chemical to make your tortoise last forever.
2: Yeah, exactly. So that is a
1: little um, element of concern. Many, many years ago, I did
2: an interview about um, there'd been a spate of owl-dumping after after harry potter harry potter people yeah. had got owls uh, they couldn't keep them and then they would started to dump them by the roadside and uh, these and that's awful genuinely i mean don't get an owl no. if you're not if you're not able to look after it what are you thinking of um and people were just oh, some so people are there are some low lives around aren't there They're absolute Egypt so don't go dumping your stuffed pets if you've had them efficiently and properly done
1: Could I squeeze a quick email in from Mock before we go to Kate Humble I'm one of your loyal male listeners says Mock, originally from the other place but now on the Times radio app Well done. As my blood boiled last night over the Home Secretary's speech in Washington, I was delighted to have your calm and dulcet tones to calm me down. And on the subject of celebrity dreams, I dreamt I was delayed on an easy jet flight and my luggage was mislaid. I had to visit customer services where I was helped by a smiling Victoria Beckham, who managed to retrieve my belongings for me. Interesting detail. She had a lilac pen that matched her nail varnish. Oh, gosh. I mean, she
2: would, though, wouldn't she?
1: Yeah. I think that's just lovely. And uh, I'm heartened to know that there's somebody dreaming about a smiling Victoria Beckham because sometimes she doesn't look very happy, actually. She's the luckiest lady alive. She just got a lovely David. He's still ever so fit and healthy. She's got all the lovely kiddies, 1,700 of them, and she's got frocks a go
2: go. Yes. What's she got to complain about? Right, um, okay, if we did actually briefly reference the new Beckham Netflix series available next week, which neither
1: of us will be watching much, much. (laughs) I'm going to be watching it on (laughs) 0.5. (laughs) Right, do you want to go into Kate Humble? Well, no. Oh, yes, you do. Okay, here we go. Uh, We know Kate Humble for her devotion to the great outdoors as a presenter on nature programmes like Spring Watch and Autumn Watch and Animal Park. She's also a former president of the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, so she would have thoughts on owls. Uh, She's the author of several books, and her latest is an exploration of how we all feel about home. It's called Where the Hearth Is, and we started by asking her to tell us a bit more about the concept behind the book maybe if i explain why i even thought about the question what is home
4: and um i thought about it because i've had this long-held dream of building my own house physically building it which is obviously ridiculous because i can't even put a shelf up but i quite like the idea of building a house and i've always been interested in kind of off-grid and the kind of the the ways that different ways that people can live that we can live So this really was a kind of exploration of what it is that makes a place. And it's not necessarily a house. It might be a, you know, it might be a shack in the woods or it might be a camper van. But what is it that makes you feel that you can be completely yourself, completely liberated and unfettered by Mm. being polite? Where, I mean, I, I say it at the beginning of the book, it, for me, the epitome of home is being able to sit with a jar of peanut butter and eat it with your finger without anyone
1: caring. And that's a glorious position to be in. It is. You do start, though, uh, with your home, your childhood mm. home, and maybe people think that you were brought up in the woods. <laughs>
4: <laughs> <Brought> <laughs> up in is that, is that a reflection on the fact that I do look like I live in a head?
1: <laughs> no, but we know you for your love of the countryside, yes. don't we? So yeah. actually, the fact that you were brought up in a pebble dash house, snails play a big part in the story too, and I'm hoping we can get to that. Yes. Uh, I was quite surprised actually. I assumed that you had had a far more kind of uh, rural upbringing. Maybe you were just born in a canoe or something like that, Kate.
4: Uh, no, I, I mean it was it was it was rural. It was just that pebble dash was obviously a thing. I think it was it was a Victorian um, house surrounded by a farm. I don't think it had ever been the farmhouse. There was another house, but it was just a house that happened to be on a bit of land surrounded by farmland. So it was still very rural, but it just happened to be pebbledashed as well. And um, And it was a wonderful place... To grow up, I mean, it dis, it probably does sound uh, my description of it probably does sound a little bit Enid Blyton. I mean, it was because it was the seventies, and the wonderful thing about growing up in the seventies is that no one really had thought about health and safety. Um, you know, it was a badge of honour to have really as many plasters as you could fit on both knees. If you had, if you didn't have lots of plasters, you hadn't had a proper childhood, and um, and it was. You know, I grew up at a time and in a place where your parents literally did say "Go outside and don 't come back until it 's dark yeah. um, and so it was an amazingly um, bucolic um, safe, secure childhood and What I wondered when I was sort of thinking about this idea of home was whether that that start in life first of all gave me the courage to then and, and the, the kind of impetus to have the wanderlust that I then had for years afterwards and, and kind of hasn't really gone away um, but the thing that was confusing was why I was so happy to leave it as yeah. well because when I was 18 I left home and my parents sold that house about three years later because my dad's job moved and I felt no emotional kind of pangs at all when I left it
1: you travel into so many other people's homes throughout this book is the one that you think of where you think actually that is the place that really nails this whole concept of a home being such a kind of spiritual part of yourself and you being the spiritual part of the home it's it was what
4: I worried about when I When I started on this, uh, on this sort of, on the research, I suppose, was would everyone just look at me and go, well, what are you talking about? It's really obvious. You know, home is where you have your photograph album and the people that you love, and that would be it. And actually, what was extraordinary was how different it is. Everybody wants that same feeling. Safety was a word that came up a lot, a place to feel safe. I talked to an incredible Syrian woman called Jana. And, uh, she had been, she was born in Aleppo. She was brought up in Aleppo. Her whole family, you know, her whole life was in the street in Aleppo where she, uh, was born and grew up. And then she married quite young when she was a teenager, um, uh, to a, a you know, a young man who lived just down the road and all the families knew each other and supported each other. And then the war started and, um, it's a it's a very long complex story her story but she ended up having to leave aleppo um there's no there's no taking the easy route it's not you know she's not somebody who just went oh life's a bit tough i'm going to go and see if i can go somewhere else she had to leave behind everything that constitutes home not just your physical building but your language and your culture and your community and your support network and everything. She had to leave everything behind. And she then had to do it again because she got to Turkey and things didn't really work out there. She has a profoundly disabled son who, by the way, is going to be president of the world one day if there is any justice, because he's the most extraordinary boy. He's just brilliant. But she came to the UK having had this two terrible, distraught years in Turkey where she was desperately trying to find medical help for her son and trying to learn a language where people had no patience with her, wouldn't, you know, wouldn't help her because she didn't speak the language. And the only reason, and she was, you know, she was just getting there. She was just sort of getting a toe under the door. The language was just coming when this opportunity came for her to Go somewhere that her son could get better treatment, and she came to the UK, and she's been here for five years. The family have been here for five years now, and I—I mean, I think it's remarkable. She's 33 years old. This woman. She had to run across the Turkish border illegally with a disabled child and another one when she was almost gave birth I mean she literally gave birth two weeks later after she'd run across that border she'd seen people shot and killed who didn't make it across the border she'd had this two traumatic years in Turkey, she came to the UK I sat on her sofa with her, she's been here five years as I say, we talked for two and a half hours in English occasionally we had to do a Google Translate but she has been to college every day to learn English and she said When I came here, I thought that all I would do was make sure that I had the medical treatment for my son and then we would get our passports and as soon as we got our passports, we'd go back to Turkey because at least I could start to speak the language there and I knew nobody in England and I just didn't know what I was going to do. And she said, and then I came here and I found out how kind everyone is. Can can I just ask, would you
2: have included that story if in fact she hadn't enjoyed being in the UK? And if the UK had been a colder place than she <clears throat> might have expected?
4: Possibly. Because it, it was I suppose she was she was giving another example of how you find a home when you've mm. lost everything. And um, and it's it's a, it's a it's a really difficult question because in a way it would have been it, it would it would have depended whether her story demonstrated what makes a home by either not having it yes, or by yeah. having it, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I
2: mean, I, when she did have a good reception here, I was yeah. profoundly relieved. Yeah. And it's actually because the immigration has been very much in the news. And Absolutely. And I appreciate she didn't have the greatest time in Turkey, but Turkey takes so many more people than we do.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, perhaps if we knew more stories like that, the whole thing in Britain would be less toxic. What do you think?
1: Well, I,
4: th- I, what I was delighted by, by her story, and indeed... Uh, the wonderful Ukrainian woman that I spoke to who similarly when she came here and her story was really interesting because she didn't want to leave Ukraine and her great kind of conflict in her head was, I don't want to abandon my country and I don't want to abandon my parents and I don't want to abandon the people who are here and fighting. But I've got a little girl and every shred of me is saying I've got to protect her. So she had this really conflicted view of coming to the UK. But the first thing that she did when she got here, and she said, I couldn't believe it, Kate. She said, I texted my friends and I said, why are people being so kind to us? Why are people giving us their houses? And I hate to say this about the news, given where we're sitting, Um but the news doesn't like good stories. Do, you know, perhaps kindness isn't good news isn't, or isn't, doesn't make news. It's too kind of, oh, yeah, wishy-washy.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig.
1: Our guest this afternoon is Kate Humble, and we asked her to share with us some of the stories from the book that had moved her the most. So, this was, um,
4: I've done quite a lot of work in Shetland over the years, and um, when I was starting to kind of write the endless lists, which is the way I always start a book, I've got literally notebooks everywhere, just full of lists of who am I going to talk to? How's this going to work? How am I going to, I want to include animals. How do I include, you know, all this sort of stuff. And I was croft sitting for somebody on Shetland. I was looking after their sheep on the island of Walter, um, which was a perfect place to kind of do this sort of thing, because you're, you know, there's basically nobody there, apart from birds flying overhead. and um And I wanted to interview... Uh, somebody who had been born in the house that they were still living in because I'd read this statistic that the average number of homes that people in the UK live in throughout their lifetimes is 14. I was quite surprised by so that's, um, that's a lot, isn't it? It is quite a lot. But then I suppose if you think about, you know, I think about... i oh, student houses. Mind, yeah, student okay, houses yeah. and all that sort of thing. Mm. Um, squats, in my case. Um, but, uh, yes, yeah, so I loved the idea of talking to somebody who had never moved um, and Shetland was quite a good place to do that because I don't know why, why it might be but perhaps it's a sense of very strong sense of identity and belonging that feels like it percolates the people of those islands and I did indeed find somebody very easily who was still living in the house he just turned 70 and he he had physically been born in the house that he still lived in and when I was sitting around the kitchen table with him and his family, they said, oh, who else do you want to talk to? And I said, well, I'm, I'm, I, I want to talk to people who've lost their homes, you know, maybe in, in, a, in a fire. And they said, oh, well, you need to go and see Ruby and Willie Brown. Ruby and Willie are brother and sister and their parents had been crofters. They'd moved onto this croft in 1922. And Ruby and Willie, were, again, were both born there and in february 90 uh 2022 so exactly 100 years after her, their parents had first moved in um willie they were there was a big storm um, raging and these houses you know they're solid stone houses they look like they grow out of the earth you know they're absolutely and, and and this particular house was sort of nestled in these kind of in amongst the crags with this beautiful view but you you know it was probably I don't know the building's probably a couple of hundred years old and it looks like one of those things that's totally immovable you know you just it's this great solid kind of little secure safety blanket tucked in the nook of the hills um and so the storm was raging around them and um and there was this tremendous bang in the night uh, or in the early morning and you know just the thunder and willie th- thought well it's it's just a thunder crack and then he smelled a smell like like a hot wire, like a burning wire smell. And he said he had an old heater plugged in in his room and he thought, well, it's probably the fuse or something. So he got up and put his trousers and his shirt on and his slippers and by force of habit put his truck keys in his pocket because, you know, that's what he would normally do first thing in the morning. And he went downstairs and the fuse box was in the porch of the cottage and it was on fire. They got in his truck And they had to drive three miles to the main road to get a phone signal to alert the fire brigade, which they did. And by the time they were driving back, they said they came over the rise and they knew their house was lost and the whole thing was on fire. The flames were coming out through the roof. But it was very strange being in that cottage. And they'd been there, it wasn't that many months, but maybe four or five months when I went to see them. And what was so interesting was going in and thinking... This isn't a home. It's it's missing something, and it's an intangible something. And there is a German word for it, which I'm probably sorry to anyone who is German, it. shall I? I think it's Stumming. Stumming. And it's it it the translation is a sort of an atmosphere of home. It's that kind of feeling. We all know it, you know. You kind of walk into a room and you either feel comfortable or you de- or you don't, or you feel kind of warm. and And, and Willie and, and Ruby were so welcoming, but it was very odd to go into a into a kitchen that felt it felt temporary. It felt kind of like a stopgap. It really did feel like that. It's the same sort of feeling that you have when you're kind of sitting in a departure lounge (laughs) somewhere. And this is nothing to do with taste or so-called good taste. No, No. nothing to do with that. It's just this this feeling of there's no emotional, there's no emotion in there. There's no no emotional attachment in there. It was purely a practical solution. But neither of them had clearly, and why would they? invested any sort of emotional... It, you kind of need love within your walls. You know, some mm. of these people that I went to see live in incredibly basic... Um, sort of circumstances i mean matt and caris who built their own house out of basically plywood and a kind of broken down trailer you go in there it's the coziest warmest happiest i mean it's literally plywood walls and bits of bunting and you know kids pictures but it's glorious yes. mm.
1: in there it's nicer well, than any mansion what just, you also do sorry to sorry no i was just going to say it's Stimung. Stimul. Thank you, Stimul. Stimul. Thank yeah. you. Just because we don't want our very, very wide German scholar audience it's to quite, rise up, yeah, and there'll be a word for that—phoning yep, a radio station. Yeah. Now,
2: you do weave in throughout the book some lovely um, stories about. Uh, natural habitat and wildlife. There's a lovely bit on homing pigeons. I'd never thought about them before. We do think of them as vermin. They do a great job. Yes. Well, they have in the past. They have in the past. But, I mean, for people listening and watching who um, who are very keen on the environment and who associate you with,
4: with the environment, yeah. who do you vote for? Oh, blimey. There's a question. Um, I have no idea anymore. Absolutely no idea who to vote for anymore. When the news came about Rosebank yesterday... yeah. And and then I was listening to the government's justification for doing it, and then Labour's response, which was, "We're not going to overturn it, but we wouldn't um, have
2: done it." I think that's what they said.
4: Yeah, but that doesn't make any difference. Well, it's, now. W- it's
2: what you call a nuanced position, I guess.
4: Mm, maybe you're much <laughs> politer than I. am. I'm not sure I would well, have uh, called it very nuanced, but but I, I, do you know, Jane? I don't know, and I think this is the. I think this is the great. Issue now with our political landscape is that it feels like who who are the who are the grown-ups? Who are the people who who are looking at the bigger picture? Why is everyone I know it sounds naive and slightly studenty to say, why is it that everyone's just obsessed with power and not obsessed with the long term big picture? Do you know the awful thing? The my first thought when I heard it was, I'm so pleased I don't have children. And it just, you just think, why why these mixed messages? You know, in the same news bulletin, you've got them saying, oh, we need 40% of electric cars by, you yeah. know, 2030. Yeah. You know, oh, hang on, you know, Shetland, Shetland, they're building this massive, and I feel very conflicted, but also don't feel like I really deserve to have a place because it's not my home and I love going there, and it's very easy to go in and say, well, they've ruined it because they've put a great big wind farm right across the main spine of the main island, which they have. And none of the Shetlanders are going to get any benefit from it at all. But, it, but why, know, why aren't they? Because all the power's going to be exported. Um, so they just get to deal with the wind farm and the, you know, unsightliness. Do they feel that
1: they had any say in the placing of um, it? Again, it's never a black,
4: white, uh, black and white um, issue because some people support it and some people don't. Um, and, and, and there are politics involved and, you know, perhaps the deal that was done for the Shetlanders could have been done better and wasn't. And there might be all sorts of reasons for that, that I don't understand. And, and as I say, I feel, um, nervous about, about shouting about something that isn't really my business sure but i do find it extraordinary that so much investment should be put in you know renewables on an island that they're then opening up another oil field as well what who you know as i mean i'm i'm apparently a grown up and relatively intelligent and i don't i feel like what message Am I being told what are we supposed to be doing? How are we supposed to be behaving? What does net zero now mean? Where, where are we headed? What is our focal point? What is our goal?
2: But, uh, I don't know anymore. The, the government's, dif- the conservative government's defense would be we were making much better progress than almost anybody else. We can afford to slow down a little bit because making that level of progress was costing some people dear. And those people frankly feel they've got other priorities rent nhs um keeping track of their mortgage there's all sorts of and i mean there's so many concerns on the average voters mind the government clearly believe that the decision they've made is a risk worth taking
4: and might actually win them votes yes but why is opening up an oil field going to save you know reduce somebody's rent how is it going to help the normal person? Well,
2: I mean, what was, the, what was the line the government came up with? We're not going to save the planet by bankrupting in Britain. Britain yeah. By bankrupting but Britain. But do you feel... Well, that,
4: but that maybe, can... they're, maybe they're only bankrupting Britain because of the way they're running it.
1: And do I mean, you feel that the Conservative Party has lost its right to claim to be the party that represents rural communities and do people in rural communities who you meet much more than we do yeah. possibly feel that way?
4: I th- I'd, I in a way I'm not sure that this is a party politics question I think it's a general politics question I think it I think a lot of people and I would include myself in this feel very let down and very uh kind of um worn down by the political agenda which never seems to be actually for the greater good and always seems to be about being in power and just trotting out terms that they think people want to hear and they think are vote winning and you know if we are to have a world that is fair and um and and viable for people to live in um we can't make decisions it seems to me based on popular news headlines i mean it feels like to me and i'm I mean, who knows? And I, you know, I'm very conscious. I don't do some of those social medias where everyone gets on and shouts about things when they actually only know about a millimetre <laughs> of the story. Um, I don't want to indulge in that because it's not helpful to anybody. But it feels like to me, when that by-election was lost in North London, over the... Uxbridge, uh, Uxbridge, Uxbridge West London, yes, yeah. Yes, um, over the... Um, uh, you know, the car. You, Liz. Thank you. Um, when that was lost, it felt like the Conservative government thought, well, if we do any green policies at all, we're not going to win. It just feels like a kind of slightly childish, knee jerk reaction to losing well, or not doing very well. Frustratingly, in a had the people who
2: voted green in Uxbridge voted Labour. Then we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. I know. So th- I know. there's got to be more sophisticated thinking, hasn't there, around there... how you cast
1: your vote? Well, yes, but yes, probably. But you know, it's. But wouldn't those voters who voted green have voted green because they didn't find the green policies of either the Labour Party or well, the Conservative and, and therein, Party appealing? And therein to them. lies
4: the issue. So you know, do you have to be tactical, or do you have to be? I mean, it, it is. It's a, it's a, it's a minefield. <laughs> kate humble um it was really i mean she is
2: um she writes about nature she broadcasts about nature fee i'm gonna say it she's a force of nature <laughs> well done <laughs> that was beautiful thank you so, so much. really beautiful.
1: i sometimes think i peak on a thursday i think you should write cards you know those hallmark cards <laughs> yeah. yeah i think you've got a rare talent there right. i just want to say hello to
2: lisa who's in brighton um long time listener first time emailer here I thought I'd share with you what I change into when I get home. Um I'm not sure what you'd call them. Is it hippie trousers? Yes, I think that we could call them that. Can you see that? There she is. Yeah. Um I bought them because my 19-year-old daughter has a pair and I really rather envied them. So I'm not sure if I'm reliving my youth or I've just completely given up. My husband ran away with an Irish novelist last year and I certainly wouldn't have worn such garments when he was in the house. Hey-ho, I'm off to buy myself a camper van next week. That certainly wouldn't have been approved of by the erstwhile hubby. Right, Lisa, um you roam free in your trousers and uh, get behind the wheel of that camper
1: van and go wherever the hell you like. I would entirely concur, sister. And I think there's a little something in the way that you've told us that that suggests that sadness will pass, Lisa, Mm. and great things are going to come your way. And I think you should embrace whatever you want to wear around your house. Uh, Yep, and I'm with Jane. Just get in the camper van, head off. We're always here for you. Uh, And she does say as well, doesn't she, Jane? Further to the above, I'm finding the number of novelists you have on the show rather triggering. Well, you'll be glad to know that not everybody next week has written a novel. We've got Kevin MacLeod, haven't we? We've got Esther Ranson. Yeah. And we have got a novelist on Monday, Victoria Hislop. Okay, so maybe on Monday take the van in for its M.O.T. Well, she hasn't got the van yet. Well, maybe go and look at the van on the Monday. Join us on the Tuesday.
2: Yes, you can come back
1: to us on Tuesday. It'll be safe then. Um, And look, um, Irish
2: novelists, we don't know that the... uh, We're assuming it's a lady novelist that he went off with. Well... The best Irish writer was Maeve Binshey. She's no longer with us, so it's not Maeve, so it won't be anybody good. All right, don't worry about it. Okay, um, move on. You are so deserving of so much better.
1: Okay, we should probably stop there, otherwise we're going to become... Some results may have been removed. (laughs) Yes, see you Monday. But not you, Lisa. We're bringing the shutters down on another episode of the internationally acclaimed podcast off air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. Our Times Radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Henry Tribe. But don't forget that you can get another two hours of us every Monday to Thursday afternoon here on Times Radio. We start at 3pm and you can listen for free on your smart speaker. Just shout Play Times Radio at it. Uh, You can also get us on DAB radio in the car or on the Times Radio app whilst you're out and about being extremely busy. And you can follow all our Tosh behind the mic and elsewhere
2: on our Instagram account. Just go onto Insta and search for Jane and Fee and give us a follow.
1: So, in other words, we're everywhere, aren't we, Jane? Pretty much. Everywhere. Thank you for joining us. And we hope you can join us again on Off Air very soon.
0: Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded textured or tall whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right because rust-oleum's new custom spray five and one gives you control with five different spray patterns so you can tackle nooks crannies edges and curves without worrying about drips runs uneven coverage or anything else custom spray five and one only from rust-oleum mom deserves better than a drugstore card